until noon. We're live, and uh, we always have fascinating guests. And it's rerun on Wednesday at 9 a.m. and Friday at 2 p.m. There you go. And uh, we talk with some of the most interesting people from near and far, some from Maui and some from beyond, some from way beyond. <laughs> but, uh, more often than not, it's, uh, it's all about uh, various uh, topical events going on, and there are a few uh, that uh, should be mentioned, and uh, the Salon Series is on once again as uh, part of the Akaku Upstairs events here at 333 Dairy Road. If you're interested, you can see their list of uh, salon discussions at akaku.org slash salons. There's a lot of interest in the Hotel Wailuku. Jonathan Starr and Helen Nielsen will be upstairs uh, on February 13th. Uh, if you want to find out more about the new Kama'aina Business Hotel for Wailuku Town. And if you want to RSVP, you can uh, call 871-5554 or, again, go to akaku.org slash salons. I also want to mention uh, Pro Arts. Uh, they've been uh, uh, presenting classical music uh, at their location in Kihei, and uh, they have a classical soiree, a night of Mozart, Mahler, Prokofiev, and Debussy at Pro Arts Playhouse. That's coming up tonight, 7.30 p.m., and uh, it should be a wonderful event. They, they've had uh, some amazing players come in, and not only that, but some wonderful shows the Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime was their uh, last program. Uh, I also want to mention Maui Mediation Services. Uh, they have an exciting fundraiser coming up, a silent auction at Flatbread Pizza Company in Paia. That's on Tuesday, February 4th. A portion of all pizza sales will be donated to the agency, which has been helping Maui County residents resolve their disputes for 38 years. And, uh, again, that is at Flatbread Pizza. You can call the uh, Mediation Maui Services at 244-5744 if you want to find out more about that. And, uh, of course, we got the big game coming up. Uh, yay. Anybody uh, up for the big game? <laughs> no. No, not uh, really? No Chiefs or 49ers fans? Well, anyway, it's all happening at the Mac, and uh, they're showing the big game on two big screens, one indoors at the Castle Theater and one in the Okuuchi Pavilion. So if you want to get on, in on this free uh, presentation, more than a presentation, it's the big, big game, then uh, just be there. It won't cost you anything unless you want to uh, purchase food or, uh, or drink. Uh, outside food and beverages, probably not allowed. All right, uh, just one more note, and that's about our friends at the Boo Boo Zoo. They need volunteers to help with the barnyard animals. Sylvan, the director, has had an accident, and caretaker Rick has had to take on extra duties. If you love animals, you will deeply enjoy volunteering at the Boo Boo Zoo. Anybody that likes being outdoors is 16 years plus and can feed hay to the goats and deer, push a broom, run a power washer, uh, then contact Tracy at 
409-679-409-6745 or visit the eastmauianimalrefuge.org website and uh, you can find out more how to help them out. So we like to help out the uh, Boo Boo Zoo because uh, we've known Sylvan for, for many, many years. Um, one of our favorite cats came from there. So, uh, Oh, and I wanted to mention the Woodworkers uh, Journey, which is at the MAC, uh, and that goes on through uh, February 23rd. So if you're catching the big game, you might want to take uh, a look at some of this uh, wonderful woodwork uh, with uh, a select group of 25 established artists from Hawaii and the U.S. mainland with distinguished careers in woodworking presenting some of their finest, finest work. It's astonishing, really. It is. It is. We recommend it. Well, uh, welcome, Jean Ann and Myra Munson, to our studios. Uh, we're glad to have you here. And uh, I know that uh, part of the discussion today will have to do with uh, Native Americans who have been uh, treated so badly, and even our own Hawaiian people have uh, felt the uh, the ignorant uh, mistreatment of, uh, and you know, it seems like we're just cleaning up after uh, the the damage our forefathers have done, and not all of our forefathers, maybe three out of the four. I don't know. So, uh, welcome and uh, good to be with you. Um, we know Jean from our where we live. And These are some of our favorite visitors. Favorite visitors, that's right. And they right. came all the way from Alaska. Alaska. So there, are there more Native Americans in Alaska than other states? Um, Alaska has about uh, the Native American population, or Alaska Native populations, about 18 to 20 percent of the statewide population, which is the highest proportion of any state, but not nearly as many as in some other states that have large Indian tribes um, and concentrated, although they make up a smaller proportion of the state population. I see. So, so Oklahoma, for instance, has way more natives, and South Dakota, where I'm currently have been doing quite a lot of work, has more Indians, but a smaller percentage of the overall population. Mm-hmm. So, uh, why do they need step? help and what what are you doing well i'm a member of a national law firm sanoski law firm that represents native american interests and works on behalf of tribes so in the mainland united states and in alaska um there are 500 and plus tribes 520 i never remember the exact number one would think after 30 or 40 years of practicing one might remember but i don't um of those tribes, about half are in Alaska. Uh, they're mostly small, but up to uh, over a thousand people in a tribe. In the lower 48, they are much, many much larger, but also small. And I think many people don't realize that from the time of, occup- of Western people coming to the what is now the United States, the course of dealing among the majority the that Western population with Indian tribes is really a, a bad one for the most part. Um, there were, were periods of wars, of course, and then deliberate congressional and federal policy of termination of tribes, assimilation, trying to move people around to try to eliminate their tribal ties, and ultimately 
um, in the 70s, remarkably during um, President Nixon's term, became a period of self-determination um, for tribes. And that era continues, although none of the, none, even that, as positive as it has been for tribes in the, United, in the mainland and Alaska, it still leaves a lot of federal domination of tribes. So uh, Senator Inouye once attended a conference I was attending, um, former senator from, from Hawaii, who was an enormous advocate of Native American interest, and he talked about the treaties, and he said about those treaties that of all the treaties that were signed, or the, all the treaties that were entered into by the United States that tribes signed, only half ever made it to Congress and were ratified by Congress, mm -hmm. and none, zero, were ever lived up to in their entirety. Oh, my gosh. Um, and that history, along with various Native claim settlements in Alaska, the um, decision by, Congress, by the administration to not recognize certain tribes, and then later to allow recognition again and those tribes continuing to press to be recognized as, as tribes, um, it acts as a backdrop to what happens now. But for all the bad news, and the, and the history is so painful and it's when you so said immediate. Termination, what, what I mean by termination is that the governmental status. Uh, so I do a lot of training with tribes as I interact with them. I assist tribes to take over running federal programs. It's a big part of my practice. And when I talk with them about why should they consider this, Sort of the starting place is, at least from my perspective and from theirs, is their tribes or they are people with sovereign governmental powers that predate the United States and predate Western occupation. They exist no matter what Congress or any administration does or says, they exist. And, but, you know, for day-to-day -day life, if Congress doesn't recognize it, if the administration won't d deal with them, if programs aren't funded, life is very challenging. So when Congress, when the many tribes, especially in Washington State, Oregon, were uh, and but all over the country, were their recognition was taken away. They were treated as if they were no longer tribes, hadn't ever been tribes. I, it's hard for me to understand the history, and I don't work much in that arena. Other people in our firm have. Um, then it just, they stayed. I mean, they didn't go away. It just meant they no longer had any right to benefits or programs of the, the federal government. But they continued to make their plea to Congress and to um, uh, the administrations one after another until eventually they got laws passed that allowed a process for re-recognition and... Um, that has moved forward. There are also a handful of tribes in the in the lower 48 that are um, recognized by states, some of which are also recognized by the federal government, some of which are only recognized by states. So everything about Indian tribes, it's sort of like if you interact with one Indian tribe, you know about one Indian tribe. Oh. And everything, you know, it, it differs from one to the next. There are a lot of commonalities, a lot of differences too. Mm -hmm. it's, it's so ironic that you know, in literature and culture, we've idolized their values and look up to them and romanticize them, and yet 
look how we treat them. Don't you think that that is, I guess from my perspective, that's a little bit of what we do to any population we want to devalue. We sort of isolate and then we say, oh, but this is so lovely, as if that defines that government or that community or those people and devalue everything else. Mm. And in many respects, Native Americans have, have continued to experience enormous racism um, the consequences of historical trauma from in I've been I said I've been doing work in South Dakota and I've, I've done lots of work in Alaska and other places but I'm really struck by some things in South Dakota um, they have the Indian Wars that are in recent memory I mean wounded knee yeah. the sec- yeah. is, is part of all of our we're That's all right. baby boomers it's all part of our mm-hmm. history well it's part of their history and the first wounded knee and then this one, they all have grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents who were affected by that sure. directly. And they have immediate recollection of being of people coming and taking children off the reservation to go into boarding schools where their hair would be cut and they'd be punished for uh, right. speaking their language. And while some will say yes we got a decent education there some will certainly in alaska a number of alaska native leaders have spoken very favorably about the education they got but the trauma of the separation um is still very present um and then you add to it the effects of alcoholism and drug abuse which affect any economically deprived population which is a lot of indians because a lot of them were moved or isolated into places with uh, not much economic opportunity. Mm-hmm. So it's it's just a very long history um, of people who are surviving no matter what. And and we've I've interacted some with Native Hawaiians who've come to Alaska where there's some remarkable uh, intertribal activity about running healthcare programs and other things, and they've come to observe that and see how it might apply here, and. The, the situation here is very similar in some respects and very different in others. The uh, and and I know so little about it as to only uh, to make it almost certain that I would make mistakes if I tried to talk about it. But it's a uh, um, uh, senator in a way used his position in Congress and I'm sure your delegation does now to try to advance the economic interests and finance of of Native Hawaiians. Where they are politically, I think, is is even more comp- oddly more complicated even than it is in the other states. And and as I said, other people should speak about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, when I moved here, it was just starting with the Hawaiian Renaissance, where before they were, you know, given names like Jane. They changed their names. They wouldn't let them speak their language. And now we have Hawaiian language schools, <laughs> which are, you know, exclusive. Yeah. So things change. And the Hawaiian language is being taught. Um, I don't know if that's true of of, uh, of the reservations in other areas. If if there's some sort of a resurgence of the cultures, um, but uh, I, the reason I moved that was because it was right in your oh, in you couldn't face. see your face. Oh, okay. so I did it oh, for visual. Oh, oh darn, visual. Oh, <laughs> 
yeah, I, I was just wondering why she was doing that. I was uh, wanting Myra to uh, talk a little bit about some things that have been really successful in self-determination in Alaska as Native corporations and tribes have taken over their own health systems yeah. because there's been some real successes. There have, and I, I just I don't want to lose it, and I think Jean Ann should comment um, because she has enormous experience as an educator and keeps up with those issues better than I do. When you talk about language resurgence, almost one of the things I've seen, even in the 40 years I've been practicing and doing other work in the field with tribes, the um, there is. People, Alaska Natives and Indians, uh, American Indians in the lower 48, um, use their own language more. When they speak in public, they'll introduce themselves in traditional ways, and they'll use traditional names. And I have worked with tribes that will hold all their meetings, or their, their uh, tribal organizations will hold all their meetings in their native language. And you look around the room, and only about half the people really speak it. But they do it as a point of honor and, and to try to maintain the interest. But languages are dying everywhere. Right. And, and so while there are efforts mm -hmm. to teach it in, in public schools as well as in other settings, um, language is incredibly difficult to sustain if it's not spoken in the home. Yeah. Um, yeah and when language, as language disappears... Um, things are lost. You yeah. you you can't yeah. you can't sustain certain things without it. And so there are res there there is sort of this tide of efforts to try to hang on to language. But uh, uh, even in villages in Alaska, that um, there was a real attempt to, for example, the first three years of school to teach and beginning reading in the Yupi tongue that the people spoke, even then, um, fewer and f fewer people are speaking as children go to, you know, get further on in school, they start studying in English, and, um, you know, it has been very hard to retain the language, but people are trying very, you know, they're uh, immersion preschools like in Hawaii and New Zealand, um, there's definitely more... Um, knowledge at the university level and at um, in the public schools, but there still are languages where there's only one or two people alive who still speak the language. Yeah. I think I'm correct that the last native EAC speaker, E-Y-A-K, died a few years ago, a couple of years ago. Um, now, there are people speaking that language who learned it and are trying to hold on to it and their tapes and so on to try to keep the language alive. But the last person who spoke it from birth to death was gone. Well, I hope they recorded. And, well, there were lots of recordings okay. and so on, and there'll be efforts. But, it, yeah. it, you know, it's as Jean Ann says, you, lots of work being done, and, and not just in Alaska, but all over the country. There are projects uh, by tribes, but it's an enormous challenge. Have you uh, learned uh, some of the language? I can speak a couple of words in a couple of languages. Yeah. I, I no, I'm. It would be. Um, I don't. I don't oh, speak any yeah. of the languages. But that would kind of help if you were at these meetings, wouldn't it? Uh, well, no. No. <laughs> it, as a practical matter, it would. It would. I believe. 
it would likely lead to more confusion than help um, because I would never learn it well. I don't think I would learn it well enough to ever get there. I studied French for a long time in college and after, and I never learned it well enough to have a conversation, yeah. you know, really. Yeah, that's so important. And if you're attending a meeting it's, and you're acting in some official capacity, it's really important you really understand what's going on. So I was, uh, I was the parliamentarian for a tribal organization of about eight tribes, and the president of that organization, and these were all uh, Inupiaq people, Insisted there had to be a parliamentarian, had to come from the law firm, and I was it. I was to be the parliamentarian. Are so, you an attorney? I am an attorney, yes. Mm -hmm. I have been for a really long time. Um, so I um, would go to the meetings, and the whole meeting would occur in Inupiaq. And I would sit there and listen attentively, and I would recognize some things from the agenda, and I'd know where we were and what was going on, basically. But, of course, I didn't understand what was being said. And a long debate ensued, and it was obvious the audience was, somebody in the audience was really unhappy about something, and went on and on and on, and finally someone else called point of order. Now, the truth is, for lots of us who don't overall, I, I am compelled to know something about Robert's Rules of Order, but most people in life can get along just fine never knowing Robert's Rules of Order. Um, but in these organizations in Alaska, they all know Robert's Rules of Order. And, and if you live in a condo. And if you live in a condo, <laughs> that's right, and you have to attend the meetings, yeah. you, you learn Robert's rules, so or how to use and misuse them. In any event, there's a, call, a point of order. And the president looks over at me and says, Madam Parliamentarian, and the whole rest of the count, the, the board was yelling, English, English, <laughs> in a <the> translation. <laughs> By the time they were done translating this extremely long debate that had gone on, everybody had wandered off for their break. By the time they came back, nobody cared anymore. And then when we moved on, uh, I guess the parliamentarian had served the purpose. But there would have been nothing I could, I would never have known enough in Nupiak to follow that exchange closely enough to do anything. So it would be good for me to have known it, to learn that much more. And um, I certainly found ways to show my respect for the language in each place I well, worked. Is that a common language that is spoken? In Nupiak, spoken among a few tribes in Alaska. And then there are another, what, there are five major language groups in Alaska. There are more than that in terms of dialects. And as you work around the country, there are, I don't know, probably 50, 100 or more different languages yeah. spoken. Tribes are unique, governments and, and peoples. And they do have their own government. And they each have their own language, and they each have their own government. And, and their own way of policing and, um, and yes. uh, carrying out uh, the law yeah. according to the tribe. And the, and the law might be different within the tribe than uh, around the rest of uh, the, the state or the country right. even. Uh, so, uh, so I'll go back to the question, the, the point Jean Ann brought up of what's going on in healthcare, because it really is a model for the way in which when tribes are given, have the opportunity and take the opportunity and they have with incredible vigor of self-determination. So I mentioned that in the, during the Nixon administration, um, two major laws passed the Congress that affected Indian tribes. One of them was the Indian Self-Determination and Education Assistance Act, and it allowed 
tribes individually or through collections of tribes who authorized a single tribe or a group to come together and form a tribal organization to take over running federal programs. And the fundamental of it was you can take over the program and you get all the resources that either the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which is kind of the governmental education side of Indian programs, or the Indian Health Service, the health side, um, were spending or would have spent if they had continued to operate it. And, the, and so they could take over this whole program. And while it took a very long time and it continues to be a struggle day to day sometimes, when they took it over, they largely get to establish their own program. Now, they're subject to certain standards. And most fundamentally, they're subject to the fact that their people need health care or they need education or they yeah. need law enforcement or whatever the program is. And so they don't go in and change everything overnight because if they did, there would be this huge disruption. Mm -hmm. And bureaucracy, as painful as it is, serves a purpose of maintaining stability. And most most of us in life, including Indian people, Alaska Natives, want stability and what they can expect. So tribes started taking over. The other major law was the Indian Health Care Improvement Act, which started the process, which uh, and was finally, it's been amended many times, but significant amendments in 2010 as part of the, I just get the date wrong, uh, part of the Affordable Care Act, um, allowed tribes to essentially take over and run programs so long as they um, advance the interests of tribes, the interest in health care, and the standards for that were set are tied to the World Health Organization oh, standards okay. for health care. Oh, that's good. Um, it was a deliberate decision on the part of tribes yeah. to no longer try to set individual benchmarks, all of which were lower than the benchmarks set in the Healthy People 2020 standards, uh -huh. or 2010 or 2005, yeah. whatever the standard was, uh, the standard for Indians was always lower. Now it's all tied to, well, it's actually tied in the law to Healthy People 2020, but that, or whatever the successor is, but it's, uh, those come from World Health Organization standards as well. I mean, they're very much integrated. So tribes take over these programs, and in Alaska, um, tribes, uh, the tribes are small. I said there are over 200 of them. Um, they organized decades ago into tribal organizations. So there are about 25 uh, tribal organizations or individual tribes that took over their health program from the Indian Health Service. And then they formed a statewide organization and they took over everything else in the health programs. They run all of the environmental health programs that build uh, sanitation facilities in villages that don't have running water. Is this just, just for the native uh, This is peoples. just for the natives. Well, the non-natives who may live in the same community benefit from oh, okay. it. But, yeah. you know, there's no way to build a water system that says only goes to these yeah. houses and not to that one. Um, they um, And they took over all the health programs, all the prevention programs. They run an ep epidemiology program. They do all of those things. And the, the changes, if you look at each place where it's occurred, the buildings have expanded. They, they bill. They can recover third-party revenue from Medicaid and Medicare and other payers. And because they're focused on their community, they 
focus on their community and they focus on the health issues that directly affect them. So tremendous progress in diabetes prevention mm -hmm. and diabetes response occurring. Yeah. Yeah. In dental care, they expanded on a program that the federal government, the Indian Health Service, had um, encourage the community health aid, which is a paraprofessional, a person with a high school de degree who is trained specially to provide, to perform medical procedures. And they're taught a whole, or an array of things. The scope of practice is much narrower than it would be for a physician, for instance, who goes and learns everything. But within that scope, they're very well trained to do it. And back in the first days, they got on a ham radio to talk to a doctor in the regional hub or in Anchorage at the Native Medical Center. Um, now it's pretty high-tech telemedicine doing that yeah, connection yeah. for them. But they, the, the death rate from uh, babies, the death rates after accidents plummeted with the dental health aids. The incidence of caries or dental disease, oral disease, has plummeted in Alaska Native communities when they picked up the same concept and trained people to be dental health aides to do preventive work and dental health aid therapists. And they can do everything up to and including a root canal in a, dis hmm. in a really? baby tooth. They, uh, they don't do root canals in adults. Uh -huh. They can pull teeth when they have to. They can do all fillings any kind of filling and so on wow. and they and and dentists learn i don't know hundreds of procedures dental health aid therapists learn 50 these numbers are not accurate but they get the concept it's a percentage of the procedure and they spend two years practicing those proceedings over and those procedures over and over and over and over again they learn muscle mess uh, memory they learn all of the disease processes that go with that, and then they take that back into their village, and they become the primary dental mm -hmm. provider in that village, and they live there. That's their home. And I think to understand that, someone needs to realize how isolated these villages mm -hmm. are. We're talking, there's no roads out to most of these villages. Right? Maybe yeah. 50 people live there, maybe 150, maybe 200, but there's no doctor there. There's no dentist who wants to come even yeah, once yeah. a year. Um, there's, um, you know, you may be able to get a medevac out. Uh, in the summertime, maybe you can get a boat up to this village. Mm. If the weather's good, you can get a small plane in. But these are not places with the same kind of access yeah, that yeah. we normally imagine um, places where people, you know, live and have sure. lived uh, to be. So the village health aid... Um, and the dental aides in the villages have made the difference in getting some kind of immediate care yeah, yeah. if you can't be flown out of a place. What a, oh, well, I, I just want to finish that thought for a second because one of the arguments, and there was a huge fight about the expansion of dental health aides. Went, well, first of all, the dental, American Dental Association and the State Dental Society filed lawsuits yeah. to try to prevent that dental health aid therapy program from happening. I can imagine. And, and they lost. <laughs> Yeah. And they, they lost, lost because of the federal relationship and the fact that there were references to dental in the Indian Health Care Improvement Act. It's a federal program, and they, they simply lost. Um, they, the sort of interesting thing is, even in places less isolated, this program 
these, this kind of provider has enormous value because you talked about sort of each tribe has its own culture. It has its own uh, practices and traditions. Practice, yeah. Well, the practices and traditions here, they're practicing using the same medical standard or dental standard that a dentist or a physician uses. They are not practicing on some special set of standards. But what they are doing is communicating in a culturally appropriate way. They're trusted. Yeah. They're there all the time, unlike the physician who flies through, the dentist who comes in as a volunteer because they want to go fishing in the village or something. Mm -hmm. um, and it makes, it, it makes a big difference in how the children and the people in the community respond to that and the fact that you can have care on a routine basis. So it's not just until people can get out or until they can get to some other provider, that medical association sometimes, but mostly it's the dentists who, who argue this, will say, oh, well, you know, it's, and I guess if that's the best you can do, it's, you know, it's substandard, but it's the best you can do, then it's better than having nothing. But that's not the standard. Every, they've done studies on the dental side, and the community health aid program side is just overwhelming evidence. But on the dental side, there have been lots of studies and the quality of practice is at least as good at or better than the practice of dentists routinely in really? the in the wow. thing, in the procedures they do they don't do procedures outside that scope except in emergencies when they have somebody walking them through but within their scope of practice one of the one of the very first interactions of these dental health aid therapists in Alaska with some dentists when they all were at a conference together and they were working together and one of the dentists came out of it and said oh my gosh if I had had that much experience my first year of dental practice none of the dentists who come out of dental school have ever done as many fillings as any dental health aid therapist has mm -hmm. done because they're learning this massive scope yeah. Yeah. so they're learning on the job the dental health aid therapists are learning under highly supervised processes, they're mentored, they come back. So tribes in the lower 48 looked at that and said, wait a minute, we can't recruit dentists either. Dentists don't want to live in rural areas where we are. Right. Yeah, they um, and so they can drive, you can get there, but you can't right. recruit a dentist. I expect it's a problem in big parts of, in parts of Hawaii, whether you can have dental uh, providers, dentists here. The dental health aid therapists get this training they want to live in these communities. And, and they're trusted. And they're trusted yeah, in those yeah. communities. And so the Swinomish tribe, um, which has a, in Washington State, started a dental health aid therapy program. They sent their people to the Alaska training program. They adopted a whole code for um, carrying out dental health aid programs. And they started licensing dental health aid therapists. And um, states around the country have picked up the model. Minnesota started. They require at least a, a bachelor's degree. But other states have, have worked with the paraprofessional model, and it's expanding. So when I think about things that have come out of the Native American community that are possible in other communities, they, they spread around Indian country. They also could spread, they spread to state governments. Um, I don't know the state of Hawaii dental licensing, but I suspect it's like most states. If you finish at an accredited dental school, you can be a dentist after they process you through their licensing things, mm -hmm. um, or a hygienist through theirs. But there are states that are 
incorporating this kind of dental therapist into their state licensing laws and making it possible to expand dental access, which has an enormously important um, opportunity for improving health. Um, and it's coming, the, the rise of it's coming out of the Native American community, but it's spreading. Kaiser and some other large um, foundation, health foundations are helping to support oh, uh, the yeah. effort to inform states about these programs. Yeah. I have to wonder about uh, midwives, and uh, do, do the tribes have their own midwife or uh, some, a doctor who can perform and, uh, deliveries? <laughs> deliveries, <laughs> yes. Well, tribes have, through, uh, through taking over health programs, they have uh, medical staff um, who perform prenatal care, and if they have hospitals, and, and there are hospitals dotting around Indian country, there are quite a few of them in Alaska because of the enormous isolation uh, in the lower, all of, from Washington State all the way to the southern tip of California, there's not a single Indian-run hospital. Indian Health Service doesn't have any, tribes don't have any. Um, they're, they're spotty, it's just a history of finance, funding. Um, and some of the, the things. So in those places where there is an Indian hospital, then they'll do deliveries uh, typically. Um, some of them do have nurse practitioner, nurses who do uh, practice midwifery. Some don't. Um, most tribes, and including Indian Health Service actually, um, have a place in their practice for some traditional healing. Um, but it's principally around navigating. It's assisting people to use the strengths of their traditional beliefs to to um but not to substitute for western medicine it's to navigate the when traditional healing is more effective and when one should be taking advantage of western medicine you know when i in the early 70s late 60s i lived in nome alaska which with that time was like 2500 people there was a hospital there uh but People in villages around there, often a village midwife would deliver ch children. Today, there's a real emphasis on getting people to leave uh, during that last month of pregnancy and go to uh, near a native hospital in Anchorage where um, there's housing and to stay there. So uh, staying in the villages to deliver uh, I think is discouraged now. It, it right. is, and it has been for, for a long time. And it did, it, it wasn't, it isn't a lack of confidence in native mid, in midwifery that led to it. Yeah. It's there's no means to respond in the event of a, a crisis occurring right, in the delivery. Right. Yeah, that, if you're in a village, if you're isolated, so midwifery all around the country tends to be, it's, it's very well supported in lots of places. It's built into Alaska law and in many states they have authority for midwifery. Um, but m nearly all of them require some relationship with a hospital where in the event something is going wrong, you can get to the hospital. Um, or get additional medical care, and that in villages isn't possible. On the other hand, I once helped escort a couple of feds from Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services out to a village in Alaska where, and this was a deliberate ploy on the part of one of the uh, native leaders who uh, was on that trip, 
Oh, we'd flown from Anchorage and we flew to Bethel. And that's an hour on a jet. And we landed there and we looked around the facilities there, which are pretty modern, not as modern as they will be. There's a new facility being built there. Um, and then we got on a little plane and then we flew to another village, which had a mid-level clinic with one mid-level provider and some health aides, and it was very nice, it was pretty new. And then we got on a little plane and we flew to another village. Well, that one we landed and there were boardwalks. No roads, boardwalks. And we got off the plane and we had to walk. And we walked past the plate, the laundromat place where they had some uh, water supply and where you could fill a, a bucket of water or a, a pail. And then we walked on to the health clinic. This is the, the tribal health, the, the community health clinic, uh, staffed by health aides, no running water, mm. no sewage, um, little tiny place. We all kind of hovered in the entry, which is half, about the size of this room mm. up to where you're sitting, Bob. Uh, and that's it. And we've got some snacks over here. And um, the tribal leader, who I won't name, um, who is so sneaky. Anyway, she just kept feeding them coffee, and they just got more and more uncomfortable because there was no place, really, <laughs> that they were comfortable using a restroom. But she, but one of the health aides took one of the CMS people around this little teeny clinic where there are like three little tiny exam rooms, and she said, and last week we delivered twins in this room. Because this mom had not been evacuated early enough yeah. into Bethel, she would have been able to stay in Bethel, probably might have with twins gone all the way to Anchorage. But they have pre-maternal homes in major hub communities as well as in Anchorage so that the mom can come in and be in a safe place and be able to get the end of her health care. Those are care. private homes? No, these are, these are, again, run by the tribal health programs and supported in part by Medicaid, wow. uh, third-party revenue. Um, but they're part of the One of the things about the Indian health system, so my um, bias, I think it's it, perhaps that's not a bias. It might even be true, completely true. And that is that we have no health system in the United States to speak of. We have lots of fantastically wonderful health services for people who have enough money or can somehow get into that health program. Um, we have amazing medical education. We have lots of pieces of what might belong in the health system. A true health system, though, the only one that really exists in the United States is the Indian health system. Hmm. With Indian Health Service as the kind of centerpiece of it, now in the last uh, few decades, funding tribal health programs, more than half, way more than half of the Indian tribes are served now by Indian programs run by tribes. But that system built on the Indian Health Care Improvement Act starts with education. It has the law addresses education for paraprofessionals all the way through graduate level education and how do we're going to attract people in to provide care? How do we include, increase the number of Native Americans who are participating? It has a whole law, set of the law that's a, uh, addressing facilities, having clinics and hospitals and behavioral health centers and uh, sanitation and um, safe water, safe sewage, safe solid waste. Mm. All of those things, because all those issues really drive disease. Sure, yeah. And then it has 
particular health problems, you know, it, it addresses, it has hospitals and clinics and doctors and dentists and all that stuff, has whole uh, systems for behavioral health, dramatically underfunded, but nonetheless uh, focused. And there's a, now a move toward, there's a new activity in Alaska and spreading around the country um, for behavioral health aids as well. Well-trained people working at a paraprofessional up to eventually bachelor's and on levels working in a system. So a system of healthcare addresses everything from water and sewer, having a building that's right. suitable to having health providers of all kinds who are um, culturally appropriate and reliable and well-trained, culturally trained to operate, working in consult in, um, together with behavioral health providers. So it, the system is one that is studied by other countries and really should be a benchmark for what we look for nationally. And it's what states through their public health agencies try to accomplish, mostly dramatically underfunded, um, and try to support with local regulation and so on to make sure water and sewer is safe. But it's in the Indian health, in the Indian communities, it all comes out as part of this big system. Yeah. Uh, maybe you could address um, uh, a few uh, things that, uh, well, we have friends who uh, live in Canada, and they're native people, uh, and there uh, seems to be problems in the, some reservations with drugs and alcohol, which, I mean, if there are no economic opportunities for young men especially, uh, then that's what they turn to. Uh, so, and you mentioned behavioral programs, yeah. which would be important, but I imagine some of the smaller tribes that are far removed, they've got to deal with these things yeah. themselves. Small, large, all tribes, but like all communities, are being affected by right. drug abuse and alcoholism. In Native communities, alcoholism is the core of so much pain. Yeah. Yeah. and. You know, in in some respects, deliberately introduced, um, and and now just continues, but affected by the lack of opportunity and so on. But even in communities with more opportunity, just like in farming communities all over the country, rural areas are affected by methamphetamine and yeah. um, other opioids. Everything is everything that can affect people affects tribes and of course in tribes it's the isolation and everyone else and everybody else sure. so everybody's affected um indian health service and congress have provided fund congress through indian health service and the bureau of indian affairs have provided funding to try to address some of those issues the funding is never even close to adequate um and of course, if the if the issues are not being addressed adequately in the larger community, then the demands are uh, tribes, along with you know, along with states all over, are suing the uh, pharmacy com companies over what they believe was profligate and deliberate distribution of opioids um, in ways that knew had to be diverted. There was no possible justification for the extent to which they were available. Well, we've seen that in the inner cities, too, mm -hmm. with right. uh, drugs being somehow introduced to uh, the poorer population, and uh, they've got nothing. What, you got nothing else to do? Yeah. Well, here's some drugs. Yeah. They had drinks some alcohol, and uh, uh, it's devastating, not just to that community, but 
to, as we've seen here, we have um, we have alcoholics and uh, drug abusers who are part of the homeless uh, group of you know the many homeless people we mm -hmm. have here on Maui, and uh, um, I personally I'd love to help them, but I I can't I don't know who's hooked on whatever or who's a drunk. Uh, who can't help themselves, and so it's very difficult to approach them and say, "Here, let me suggest, uh, you know, talk talk to this organization or these people." Many s people don't want to be helped. They don't want to be on that, uh, you know, uh, uh, in, uh, in in on that system. So um, uh, that uh, that is a concern for all of us, not just for the native people. Mm -hmm. But the other thing I'm curious about, and, and we hear uh, a lot about uh, uh, gambling casinos now that are supposed to be, a, you know, a blessing to the tribes. I can't imagine that would, would be a blessing. Well, I, I you know, I, I was trained as a social worker um, before I was a lawyer and then a master's degree in social work and a law degree, and I... Um, had very high skepticism about casinos, but here's what I finally came to terms with. Um, if everything, if every other way to generate revenue is unavailable, human vices are another way to re generate revenue. And <laughs> casinos, that's what casinos do, is yeah. they take advantage. Now, uh, some people gamble without it becoming an addiction. Um, some people play bingo until they can't afford, and that didn't require tribal casinos to do. Um, and, you know, so bingo can be a bad thing or it can be just a Sunday occupation at church, in the afternoon at church, you know, in the church building. Um, what I saw, and I've interacted, well, I've interacted with a lot of tribes that have casinos. Um, those casinos in some cases, in, in one tribe I represented, it's a pretty small tribe uh, in the Midwest, um, they use the revenue to build a big health clinic, uh, way bigger than IHS could have. They used the revenue to buy have health providers that Indian Health Service never would have been able to mm -hmm. afford. Congress didn't give them appropriations to do that. They used the revenue to buy a mine <laughs> that um, was about to be reopened in the neighboring area that they believed would cause pollution and interfere with the tourism industries they were trying to support. Um, and to ensure that there wouldn't be environmental degradation. Huh. Um, wow. Tribes use that revenue for lots of purposes. Some of them use it to send as many other kids as they possibly can to college or to other education. Hmm. Um, they use it to support new housing. They use it to support community gardens. Um, tribes do all kinds of things with it. And Sometimes they use it for individual distributions, and it has, you know, their effects. But it's a highly regulated activity. Are there problems in some cases? I'm sure there are. Um, but not what I think people imagine when they think about, oh, casinos, and they imagine that somehow the mafias come in, and, <laughs> and, it, and they're running all the, these programs that is not. They're a highly regulated activity by the federal government with state agencies. They all have to have a compact with state agencies. Mm -hmm. Background checks are extensive, and it's a revenue source. And 
you know, when you talk to a tribal leader who used that revenue source to build a brand new hospital that now is serving not only the native people on their reservation, but all of the local people in the, na in the communities nearby, native, non-native, yeah. who come yeah. to it because they didn't have any health care. As doctors have moved further and further away from rural areas, tribal programs are becoming the health care provider yeah. in those places where they are. And, yeah, and casinos help support that. Well, we, she just opened her eyes. Yeah, I, we were also going to talk about climate change, right? Yes, please. Um, <laughs> just just uh, one other note, uh, because uh, we talk here on the show about uh, uh, people uh, should get on a plant-based diet. It's so much healthier for you. And, uh, and then you look around, and we've got so many sources for that kind of food, if you want to. In you know, Hawaii. In, in Not Hawaii. so much in Alaska. But, I mean, mm -hmm. I, I would imagine some tribes have nothing but a, a small store selling. Uh, yeah. Canned goods. Hand, yeah, yeah. Canned goods. And uh, well, I wish it were all foods. canned goods instead of um, uh Packages of cookies and you know so on. Yeah, they, yeah. There are food deserts all over rural America and in parts of urban communities and native communities. Right. That's that is a present problem. There are projects going on. As I said, the diabetes programs are working hard at building a. a, a, a community consensus around going back to a more subsistence side, a healthier right. mix of sure. food, um, a lot of gardening programs going on around the country. But the availability of healthy foods is a problem. But I think to make the segue over to uh, climate change, that subsistence diet and the opportunities for farming are being affected today sure. by what's happened with climate. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I was just sitting here thinking, you know, of course, salmon has fed almost every native group except maybe a few coastal people who right. lived mostly off of sea mammals. Um, and um, it's very unclear what's happening to the salmon population right now in Alaska. The um, effects of farm fish getting into the wild stock, mm. the rising temperatures of the ocean. Uh, there's a lot of rivers they're just not coming back to right now. And people mm. in villages along those rivers, you know, that's their staple. That's their they dry it for yeah. the winter. Um, you know, subsistence, um, Subsistence is life, is what one T-shirt I saw. But but it is uh, not just a way to get food, but a way of life in rural Alaska. And global warming is certainly affecting this. I mean, yeah, the sure. uh, temperatures, I heard a native leader from the North Slope talk earlier this year about the cliffs that are falling off because the permafrost underneath is thawing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. In Juneau, it's so obvious our main uh, attraction is the Mendenhall Glacier, which in my lifetime I've seen shrink I don't know how many miles. But uh, it's, you know, from something that was, you know, dominant across the, the face um, now is, you know, hiding back into the, you know, between the mountains. Um, so um, there's a lot as no one knows 
as the permafrost melts, what that effect is going to be. All we know that a lot of methane is going to be in the atmosphere. There are sinkholes and problems with roads. Um, But, um, you know, the... What's going to happen to the animal population? There's already some disastrous effects. And if if you don't think that affects us, uh, then all you have to do is visit the, our shore. That's right. Uh, and <laughs> our very condo is being gradually chewed up by the rising waters. But and the effects are everywhere. When I I've been visit, keep saying I've been visiting the uh, the plain states. And droughts and floods in alternate cycles, and just fast mm-hmm. right after each other. So whole huge areas of farming now, you know, underwater, way longer, and the crops then mm-hmm. no longer able to be grown, and then drought, and then floods, and it's just it's everywhere. Jeanan and I were lucky enough to visit Africa um, in October, and we were in Zimbabwe where you can't you can't begin to describe or understand the experience of the drought there where people walk women walk kilometers to carry water back to their yeah. homestead it's crazy yeah two three four times a day yeah. just to f- have water for their family let alone to farm anything at least yeah. half of victoria falls was dry because the zambezi river is so wow. uh, diminished Right. So all over the United States, all over Alaska, all over the world, climate change is probably our most serious problem. Yeah. Um, the more people, I'll bring it right back to self-determination for a moment, the, to the greater, ex, the greatest extent possible, tribal people can take control of their own programs. It gives them a slight edge in fighting back against the changes that are going to occur, the ability to manage their own lives. But nobody was going to escape this. I I would always have to plug citizensclimatelobby.org. Look uh, about it and take action. It's one doable, concrete thing you can do. We've been talking with Jean Ann and Myra Munson. I thank you both so much for coming in. We are down to our last few seconds, believe it or not. This is hours just zoomed by. And I, I know I've got more questions, but we just don't have time. Is there a, a website or, or some place that people can find out more about what they can do about climate change outside of what Bobby just said uh, and how we can help the Native peoples here and abroad? <laughs> That's a lot to cover in about a minute. <laughs> well, I guess I'm just here um, as uh, not representing any organization, yeah. Yeah. so I really well, I don't. That. But uh, let me plug Catherine Hayhoe as a source for information about climate change. H-A-Y-H-O-E. Okay. Uh, well, that's all the time we have. Thanks to Maui Toyota. Toyota. And thanks to uh, Bobby D. Best for sitting in today. And uh, thank you both so much. Uh, A lot of good information. And uh, it's good to be aware of our other Native populations. I'm Bill Best with Off the Record. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we're live here on KEKU 88.5 FM. Thanks for watching on Facebook. Thanks for listening to KEKU 88.5 FM. And aloha. (laughs) 